You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, and I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right, we're. Uh, I'm really excited um, for our guests today and for our conversation. Uh, today we have a special guest, a friend, if uh, we can say so. Uh, we have C. West Daniels, who is the William R. Rogers Director of Friends Center in Quaker Studies at Guilford College. He lives in Greensboro, North Carolina with his wife, Emily, and their three children and two chickens. Wes is interested in strategizing, better human interactions, spiritual developments, and revitalization of liberatory faith traditions and community. Prior to teaching at Guilford, Wes was a released minister at Camus Friends Church in Washington. He's the author of Resisting Empire, the Book of Revelation, which came out in 2019. It's a must read, and we'll be talking about that a little bit. And also a convergent model of renewal, remixing the Quaker tradition in participatory culture, which dropped in 2015. Identifying as a convergent friend, Wes is a bridge builder and boundary crosser when it comes to our various Quaker branches and is passionate about renewing the Quaker tradition. And uh, just one small fact is that I get to annually hang out with Wes at AAR. <laughs> Usually, it sounds like a, a, a bar joke, um, what happens when you have an Anablactivist, a Quaker, <laughs> and a few Mennonites who walk into a bar together. And that is um, our experience on a yearly basis. That's what um, happens. So <laughs> welcome, Wes, to uh, Inverse Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure and honor to get to hang out with the two of you. And Drew, I want to say I really appreciate your Quaker joke. If we can call him a friend, that wasn't lost on me. Well, well played, sir. Well played. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was subtle, but it was good. <laughs> it was subtle. I'm not sure how many know. Um, I guess it depends on what our listeners, how if they how understand Quaker, Quaker they tradition, right, right? How Quaker right. nerdy they are. My um, guess is probably not a lot. Not nah, sure. Right. <laughs> I don't know. If, what's your experience? Dude? I feel like in my uh, students at Messiah, um, if they hear Quaker, they're probably thinking like Amish. Is that kind of what you get a lot of the time? Uh, I get oats. Or first. oats. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Amish. Right. Yeah. Which apparently, Wes, the Quaker oats was actually owned by some Presbyterians who yeah, were looking for a, like a symbol of um, trustworthiness <laughs> in society. So like, well, let's just stick a Quaker in a hat on the front. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. jump out of our own tradition, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we couldn't find anybody in our community, so we went somewhere else. Let's go with the Quakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Quaker Oats, I, I always, you know, disappoint people when I let them know. Quaker oats have nothing to do with Quakers other than uh, what Jared just shared. Um, and I said, you know, why not slap a white guy with a broad brimmed hat on your thing as a marketing <laughs> logo? I mean, it's a, I don't know. It's, a, it's an odd marketing choice, but it's the one that they're still using. They're committed to it. Um, but I, on the other hand, I do know a lot of Quakers who do like to eat oatmeal. So I don't know. <laughs> The, the circle is complete. Wes, yeah, for those who aren't familiar with the Peace Church tradition outside of Anabaptism's 500-year history, um, 
Would you talk about uh, the the strand that grew up in the 17th century in England and, and quickly in America um, that is the the lane that you swim in? Yeah, I mean, Quakers got started in 1650s-ish uh, England. And uh, our I, I really think that, I mean, we are definitely spiritual ancestors to the Anabaptists. Mm. I consider ourselves to be a part of the radical reformation. Um, you know, that, that's a contested claim that other Quaker scholars would say other things, but uh, I choose to see us as a part of that, that family tree. Um, there's no, we don't, we don't have any direct links that we know of, though we do know that George Fox, who was one of the founders of Quakerism, um, traveled widely and would have probably ran into um, Anabaptists. Um, so anyways, uh, I would and, say and, that- And early- fear of Anabaptism was in the air. So the, the stereotypes like the, the Anglican 39 articles and 37, 38 and 39 are all written in response to Anabaptists, which aren't even yeah. like in- uh, the UK. So they're, they're writing because they're hearing these rumors of continental Europe and the, this, this radical reformation tradition. Um, so that certainly would have been in the air as an inspiration for the yes. other Quakers. No, I, I'm sure of it. Um, Hans Dank, who was mm. uh, an Anabaptist mm. mystic, yeah. uh, has very, I mean, he was before Fox and early friends, but has very similar ideas. Um, So, uh, you know, I I actually, I think that early Quakers like Anabaptists were really um, challenging what I call the religion of empire, what I'm borrowing from Wes Hardbrook and Mm. others. um, They saw the the Anglican Church, Church of England uh, being in bed with the state and uh, really saw that as an apostasy. Um, they actually yeah. used uh, language that they drew heavily from the book of Revelation um, right. 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 to to challenge those things. Uh, the way that they, and so they saw themselves as kind of what they called primitive Christianity revived. Mm-hmm. They did see themselves as the one true church, as many churches when they get their start do. They got rid of, or they did not have any clergy. They did not practice right. physical sacraments of any kind. So these are places where we depart from other Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. Um, they refused um, to participate in, milita- in the military. George Fox was uh, asked by Oliver Cromwell to join the military. And he basically said, you know, you can go. Um, so, uh, but early friends basically wanted to cha- challenge the external structures of Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, the institutionalization of Christianity. And so they, right. so they, it's not that they didn't have a sacramental theology. Their theology was that when we gather together in worship as a community, Christ is present with us. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there's, we don't need elements. Christ is present here now. Um, they had a very realized eschatology. They actually believed that Christ had returned uh, inwardly. Um, mm. Yeah, and- always, I'm, I'm interested, w- would you, and, and I, I, Drew, I'm aware that we haven't even pivoted towards what passage we're right, grounding right, in today. Right, right. Bear, we'll get there, we'll get there. Bear, bear with my curiosity as we have. Um, but would you say that um, uh, the early friends were apocalyptic, 
or eschatological in their imagination because it's a um, you spend time with their radical egalitarianism, um, their rejection of violence, their uh, communal uh, mysticism, and different people play that different ways, right? Like, um, and you don't have to get to Michael Nagler like riding in on a donkey to go. How crazy is this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how, yeah. How how intense is this actually getting? They, I mean, I think that they. I, I don't know if this will answer your question. I think they believed that. Well, they believed that Christ had returned inwardly. That there wasn't. I don't think that they necessarily thought there was going to be some kind of second coming, and so mm-hmm. they believed that now Christ is here. Christ is present to lead us and teach us. That's why we don't need clergy. We don't need a priest to mediate when Christ is here with us. Um, and so we ought to structure our community, um, our worship, our lo- the way we live our lives as though the kingdom is now. Mm, yeah. And so this is why, um, this is why they, you know, they worship the way they did in silence and waited for, Christ to essentially kind of speak through someone. Um, and they, uh, I mean, the reason why they wouldn't participate in warfare was the, the way that Fox articulated it was essentially, we are living as though it is Eden again. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how would our ethics are, you know, how would we live if it was Eden? Right. So and then you know, we kind of fall. They 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 also talk the the way they talked about it. Another way is gospel order. So yes. ordering ourselves as though the gospel is fulfilled, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was kind of the very early, um, you know, uh, maybe apocalyptic sort of fervor of the group. Um, Eventually, that obviously dies down. Um, and the early part of the Quakers, as with the Anabaptists, were heavily persecuted. Um, many died in prison. Um, it was uh, was not until quite some time later when um, they finally, when the government passed some laws to protect Quakers. But it was not uncommon for Quakers to be rounded up. Uh, when they were worshiping together in a home, you know, there's stories about children watching, you know, all the adults be carried off to prison because yeah. they were worshiping together and that sort of thing. And um, incredible so stories of kind of children then, yeah, d- children that? then carrying on um, meeting for worship and meeting for business, that there was such a sense of agency amongst the young people and um, uh, that all, all were called to minister because of the, the light of Christ being present in all and to all that they continued to, I find those stories about the children, like so yeah. incredible. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of, you know, at least a little bit of the, the start of it. It, I, I won't go into, you know, too much of the rest of the history, but it, it does travel to America um, and in the in the 1800s, it, Quakerism splits into three groups, mm. and we are more or less living in the wake of those three main splits. Um, I mean, they've splintered; we've, we've splintered further, um, but uh, there's still kind of essentially sort of three big groups, at least in the U.S. Um, today, uh, the majority of Quakers live in the global South. Uh, actually, mm. the most Quakers are in Kenya. Yes. Uh, with almost 200 
thousand Quakers there. Um, Burundi and Rwanda also have large amounts of Quakers, Bolivia, um, other Central American uh, countries and in uh, the make global, up the majority of Quakerism. In the global south, would it um, express itself as evangelical Quakerism with a, um, a peace church commitment? So service yes, and yeah. nonviolence? I would say so, generally speaking. Well, mm. I, we, we have to kind of always use that, that little broad uh, brushstrokes, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> explanatory comma. Uh, generally speaking, yes. Uh, mostly evangelical. Um, so, so these three branches you have on the one side, very liberal um, Quakers, uh, liberal socially, theologically, perhaps even atheist. Um, those Quakers uh, still worship without a pastor in what we call unprogrammed worship, silent worship. Mm. Um, that's what I'm used a, to in Philly because I've actually visited. Yeah, so I know that's the Quakers I know best. Um, yeah. And have sat um, in on their worship time before, yeah. Yeah. Have you, you've had an opportunity to, would you, where, do you remember where? Yeah, it was uh, Chestnut Hill. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They have a new a be- building. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful meeting house. Yeah. Mm. I actually haven't, I know they have some special feature if it's a certain time of the day and I think they sell tickets because it's popular or whatever, but um, <laughs> I haven't done yeah. all that, but, um, yeah. but I have been there for their, for their meeting time and yeah. It was, it was pretty it's cool. a it's a beautiful place it's a the it's an art installation by yeah. james Torrell, mm. uh where he basically um as the sun goes down you you kind of lay in the sanctuary looking up at the sky and this the the ceiling retracts and it plays with the light it's very interesting yeah what quaker um, um it's on the front cover of a uh book about quaker theology i'm just trying to remember oh that book the that meeting house says Yes, yeah, yeah. The the actual the ceiling fixture itself is on oh, on cool. the front cover. Um, I don't know. I don't know what book that is. Yeah, but I mean, uh, even the history of Pennsylvania after William Penn, um, right. That uh, this is important in the founding, um, <laughs> or the colonization of America no. and the complexities of right. um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that you know. Um, this is a more peaceful way to colonize. Um, this is a <laughs> pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Pretty how much. do we uh, how do we have relationship with the traditional custodians while also uh, moving onto their land without? Yeah, I mean, they're they're complex mm-hmm. realities, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and yeah, in fact, sure. so one interesting point, which we're going farther and further away from our normal <laughs> agenda. Oh, Drew, I'm but, sorry. Um, yeah, you should pull this. No, back. no, it's fine. No, no, but uh, but Germantown Mennonites. Um, the historic meeting house. So I'm actually still officially a board member, but it's a really interesting history, especially for both Quakers and um, Mennonites, because you have in this like Mennonite hybrid, Quaker hybrid group. um, Mm -hmm. It's really Mennonites who join the men, the Quakers and and there's some back and forth anyway, but then in 1688 together and it's, Quakers, but some with Mennonite influence. It's really strange. And I've okay. heard both Quakers and Mennonites tell this story slightly different. But um, <laughs> but nonetheless, they write the first anti-slavery petition in 1688 in Germantown. Right. 
And and honestly, my take from it is that it took both traditions together for that to happen, I believe. Mm. Um, Because at that historic moment, Quakers in general are not anti-slavery yet. Mm -hmm. But they will become much more forceful when they do, right? Mennonites, on the other hand, seem to, from the get-go, have this kind of anti-slavery disposition, but never are vocal and outward about it. So I do think there's something about Mennonites and Quakers together that's a great, that, um, yeah, that's that I a think great shaped that possibility. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, friends were, there were only a few friends who were anti-slavery prior to that, um, mm. you know, which goes against the, the myth. Um, at least the myth that Quakers right. like to... We're always, right, and, right. Um, but... You know, that's interesting because I have, I've often kind of thought about Mennonites and Quakers um, as having very similar ideals, but one being more, like Quakers tend to be more willing to get into politics and that's kind right. of push those yeah. sorts of, where, where Mennonites tend not to. Um, yeah. So that's, a, that's an interesting connection with, with that specific um, piece of uh, abolition. And that goes uh, all the way back to George Fox, like... Um, uh, Margaret felt like others who um, almost because of their persecution and because of their standing in society sought to actually use that in such a way to um, both for prophetic witness, but also for protection, right? Like in part it's, mm-hmm. it's. Um, oh, for sure. Uh, to Margaret to... fell was a giant. Um, I, I, in fact, you know, one of the things that I, I try to, um, hammer you know hammer on in class is that margaret fell really is the co-founder of quakerism yeah Mm. um and without margaret fell there is no quakerism and that's one because she had all the resources she was educated Mm. uh fox wasn't um she also her husband was a judge so she had Mm -hmm. legal standing in a way that other friends didn't she not only wrote regularly to Cromwell and judges, but she would go and visit them. I mean, you know, and, and and there, so, and she just was prolific in terms of her writing um, and challenging various clergy and everybody else. Uh, So she played a huge part in all of that. So I think that you're right from a, from the very beginning, there's a, there's a kind of political engagement out of survival that you know i think was was an important part of that tradition mm. the i wanted to finish the 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 thread to say that there there's kind of a uh, there's this liberal group there's this middle ground which um of quakers we call them conservative friends right. they still meet in silence but they tend to still be christian or or right. more christian mm. right. um but have tended to uh withdraw from culture not really adapt and innovate as much mm-hmm. um and then you have the quiet this of the land. other group yeah exactly uh and then you have this uh, this third group which we call program friends right. uh who have pastors um and uh they may be more or less evangelical uh there are very evangelical, capital E, evangelical Quakers all around the world. There are also, um, you know, more sort of progressive, left-leaning, liberal Christian type Mm -hmm. within that group as well. Um, 
And I would say that this tying us back to the kind of global picture of Quakerism. There is still today, uh, I mean, even today in class, we were discussing this, that um, especially this group over here with pastors and more evangelical and these sorts of things um, are often having to sort of prove themselves to the rest of the Quaker group. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a kind of looking down on, I don't know that, I mean, I'm adding my own sort of interpretation to this, yeah, but there is sure. a sense in which uh, th this group comes out of the Gurneyite tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to go into that, but basically that the Gurneyites are kind of an aberration. They've, they've drifted too far. They have pastors for heaven's sake, you know, mm -hmm. of all yeah. things. Uh, and this sort of stuff. And on the other hand, I mean, I am a Gurneyite friend and was mm. a Quaker pastor. So, you know, where, you know, where the <laughs> truth is coming from, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, our tradition has adapted, has been more contextual. It is yes. the one that was interpreted into other languages and cultures and communities for better and for worse. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, understanding colonialism and how that works as well. But but that's the tradition where there are more non-Quakers coming in and becoming a part of the Quaker church, where there's more innovation and adaptation. Mm. Um, uh, again, you know, some people like that and others think that that's heresy, but that's kind of the, the picture of global Quakerism at this, a, a very brief quick picture of global Quakerism. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So one question that we always um, ask all our guests is um, for you to identify a passage. So is there a passage yeah. that you have chosen uh, for its potential to turn the world upside down? And if you haven't, can you please <laughs> read that for us? Yes. Uh, I, I picked the passage that's already been used to turn the world upside down, maybe in, in ways that aren't so great. Um, but since we're since we're here to talk about Revelation, I figured we should just go to the heart of the matter and read about the mark of the beast. Um, mm. So this is in chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first be beast on its behalf. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one could buy or sell who does not have the mark that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. 
And Wes, this is why we're so thankful to have you on the show because we want to hear straight from you. Is this person Putin? That's the question. That's, that's, that's why we invited you on. Like, or is it Trump? Like, we, we, we just need... Yeah, like, well, it is definitely not. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm tempted, like... Uh, I, I don't because want to for, make the joke. I'm just... <laughs> yeah, I don't. But for, for so many, if they hear reference to Revelation, and I'm oh, so aware yes. that our um, Eastern Orthodox sisters and brothers, um, there is a, a reason why their tradition doesn't read in worship these texts and uh, that mm. these texts are actually protected um, uh, from the average parishioner, shall we say, <laughs> Uh, because of their potency, but potency yeah. for crazy as well. Like in Australia, you turn on the TV early on a Sunday morning and we usually see somebody who has an accent somewhat similar to both of yours using right. these texts in the most craziest of ways. And these people right. have yeah. made their way into like the centre of power of your nation who are right. advising and praying for and speaking at prayer breakfast. Breakfasts for your president like yep what on earth well we have to dilute this passage we have to um misinterpret it because if we actually took it seriously Mm. we'd be in hella trouble (laughs) (laughs) talk about it now talk about it (laughs) okay i mean seriously what revelation is saying i think is that there is it understands that there is a, a that economics is a systemic issue hmm. that poverty is a systemic issue hmm. and uh that it impacts the rich and the poor and um and so revelation is offering us a look at you know we would talk about uh, today, uh, systemic oppression mm. and what that looks like, especially because of late stage capitalism and how that impacts so many of our communities and the globe. Mm. That's what this is saying <laughs> from a, you know, a first century perspective. Well, that doesn't work real well in neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. So let's make it about something else. Generally, what we do is we, you know, uh, Rob Bell used the language of evacuation theology, right? So we make this about evacuation theology so that it's about something out there. Right. It's about someone else. Um, it's not, it's definitely not about me. It's definitely not about how I am participating in an economic system that oppresses others. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's how we distance ourselves. Mm. And yeah, we make a joke out of it. I mean, we make an actual joke out of it by, you know, being because it because it's been misused so much, but it's been misused so much because I think the the alternative is to have to take it seriously and to have mm. to take it seriously would be taking seriously the kinds of things that King talked about in the poor people's campaign. Yes. Um, And what Reverend Barber and others are talking about in the poor people's campaign. I I was just, um, uh, I did like a five week uh, study uh, with my, my meeting in town here on, on revelation. And we were going through this part. And so um, I went back. And with the gift of interpretation, um, 
that for for those who aren't capital left friends uh, meeting is just quaker talk oh, yes. for your church thank community you. yeah <laughs> yes 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 thank there we you go. Catch, catch uh, the jargon giraffe. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was looking back over uh, the Poor People's Campaign, the original Poor People's Campaign mm-hmm. and the five planks of economic, the economic bill of rights that King and others were calling for. A meaningful job at a living wage, mm. a secure and adequate income for all those unable to find or do a job, access to land for economic uses, mm access to capital for poor people and minorities to promote their own businesses, ability for ordinary people to play a truly significant role in the government. Mm. Um, So we could take that seriously and work on that, or we could make this about evacuation theology and, you know, who's got the birthmark or who's got the chip in their hand or that sort of thing and and completely (laughs) distance ourselves from the real work that we need to do. And Wes, maybe before we take um, either the book of Revelation seriously um, or um, King or um, uh, Reverend Barber's um, work today and how like it is a reference point for what's going on in this text, what's your own personal story in terms of um, the scriptures being taken seriously for you? When did they come alive for you, did did you grow up um, in unprogrammed or programmed Quaker circles? Um, what's when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? I grew up mostly going to Catholic mass, and well, mm. until middle school, high school, and um, uh, I I would say that the first the first iteration was one that was um, one that I experienced through the church. Um, mm. as the, the church as God's word, so to speak. Um, yeah, well. I grew up in a, in a poor, my, a, a poor working class family. Um, my mom and stepdad, um, you know, both were, did not, they dropped out of high schools and they, um, didn't have the kind of access to the resources that a lot of folks do. And so they worked minimum wage jobs and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and I grew up in a big family. There's six six of us um, kids uh, on that side of the family, and there were plenty of times where we didn't have food. There were plenty of times where our house was being foreclosed on. There were times when um, we didn't have you know Christmas gifts and those sorts of things. And it was the church that provided those things. I mean, I remember the church wow. on numerous occasions paying the mortgage for our home uh, so that we didn't lose our home. And, you know, and that kind of experience of community, uh, I mean, to me, I would say that still impacts my understanding of theology and what it means to be a part of the church. Um, And that that's, that's the response. I mean, it's the responsibility of a lot of other people, people and systems too, but it is definitely the responsibility of the church to be doing those sorts of things, uh, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, in, in, in middle school and high school, we started going to a charismatic non-denominational church, um, and through a series of events. And that's really where I started to learn about the Bible. It was very evangelical fundamentalist, um, Mm. perspective. 
but it was the first time that I had learned anything about the Bible and, and uh, learned how to read it, you know, at least within that particular tradition and um, came to love it. And actually in high school, I was often the, one of the leaders teaching, doing the Sunday the the youth group Bible studies and those sorts of things. Um, mm. Cause I was very passionate about it. And um, I, it, as, as is custom in, commu- in care- more charismatic communities, you, you know, people feel, have visions and have mm. prophecies spoken over them sure. and, um, you know, hear, uh, you know, word, hear God speak to them audibly and those sorts of things. And um, I had a vision or actually had God, I heard a voice from God telling me that I should become a pastor. And, mm. um, so when you are, uh, you know, when your family didn't go to college, you, you know, at least in my experience, I didn't know how you found a college or anything, you know, so we just started looking around. I actually looked at Messiah, which oh, is really? um, no way. funny. This is back in 96. Um, but anyways, uh, I grew up in Canton, Ohio, and there was a, a, a little college there called Malone. It was called oh, Malone, Malone College. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so they had a Bible and theology degree. I don't know anything about anything. Sure, right. I'll go right. there and I'll study right. the Bible. I don't, you know, right. at this point, I don't know there's different theological right. landscapes and blah, 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 blah you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I go um, and uh, as, as all or most college students do, you know, my mind started to change and I started to learn things. And uh, I had a professor who was very outspoken um, pacifist. He wasn't a Quaker exactly, but he had a a deep appreciation for Quaker theology. Mm. And um, so he was the first, I mean, I kid you not, he was the first person who introduced me to the idea that Jesus was nonviolent. Okay. I didn't yeah. even know that was a paradigm right. wow. uh, until right. I met him. And it made sense with my, like my experience and kind of my internal workings was like, Oh, that explains so much more than like this kind of, you know, Ohio militia approach. You're saying that Jesus wasn't Rambo? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, yes, yes. I, I don't, it, was a, it was a shocker, but uh, I mean. But haven't you read chapter um, 19? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember uh, I we had members in our little church uh, who were a part of the Ohio militia, which was very mm-hmm. interesting. Scenario. Wow. Um, it's, I mean, that, at least that's my impression looking back through uh, history. Mm. Um, uh, I had another professor who uh, his wife was a, a Methodist pastor. And of course I'm coming from a not anywhere near any egalitarian perspective at that point. And, you know, he starts our class on hermeneutics by basically saying, you know, hi, all of you, like brand new, sopping wet theology majors. My, pa- my wife is a pastor, and by the, t- by the time you finish this class, you will be supporting women in ministry. Um, okay. So, so that happened. Um, 
you know, it, it kind of just various theological shifts took place. And um, that's where I really gained a new appreciation for the Bible, learned that there are competing ways of interpreting the texts yeah. and you know, where I learned the languages and where you, you know, when you learn the languages, you learn that these things are so much more fluid and require a lot more work to kind of understand them. Uh, and that just like made me love it even more. Mm, um, yeah. uh, to finish that story briefly, it turned out that Malone was founded by Quakers, evangelical Quakers, wow. Quakers. Um, and I, I learned that accidentally because one thing that evangelical friends aren't always very good at is appreciating their tradition and (laughs) they, um, and Malone's, uh, kind of a a good case study in how to distance yourself from your tradition. But I, um, I, I found, I sort of discovered them, discovered this, uh, accidentally, and as I was reading, I didn't know anything about Quakers. I don't, I don't even know if I would have known enough to make the, Qua- the Quaker oatmeal joke at that point. And um, uh, as I read it, as I read the history, you know, I've, I've drifted away from my, my church home that, you know, I no longer fit in theologically. And I'm looking for, you know, a, a community and a church that, is uh, committed to nonviolence, is committed to egalitarianism, is committed to the poor and to justice. And I'm reading this early history of Quakerism and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a Quaker. Yeah, I mean, it was like, oh, this is what I am. Um, And then I, (laughs) and then as you, as I, I will guess that you know what I'm talking about when I say this, I show up in the communities and I'm like, wait a second, this is not what this is about. Right, like right, sure. these things have drifted so far from what they were, you know, so sure. that set me on a whole nother trajectory, but that's essentially how I fell in love with scripture all, all over again. And wow. kind of what led me to the Quaker tradition. It's beautiful. So would you say what, um, your encounter with scripture, especially early on, would you say that it turned your world upside down or was it used to prop the world up as it is? Uh, <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, it's definitely propping the world up. Uh, you know, I mean, we were not, we were reading it in a way that propped up patriarchy mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, gender dynamics, um, nationalism, uh, white supremacy, you know, these sorts of things, uh, not necessarily explicitly, uh, sometimes explicitly, but sometimes there's just a, there's a way of interpreting and reading these things that uh, insulate you from any kind of uh, challenge to your overall system, right? Your overall <laughs> right. <laughs> right. S- s- subtle um, request to make images of a dragon, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, um, I-, I think that there, there, but there were also ways in which, as I mentioned, um, that I think were ch- did challenge that as well, and especially the ways in which my community um, understand understood 
Um, you know, I think the commitment to the poor and I mean, yeah. one of the reasons why we found ourselves in this particular community when, when, we, when I was in my teenage years was we didn't, I mean, you know, a, a big family, a poor, a poor family, uh, my parents, my mom and stepdad, uh, you know, my stepdad had hair down to his waist. Uh, he's no longer with us. We had hair down to his waist, you know, biker dude, like, yeah. you know, not like your church going folks, really. <laughs> right, um, right. And, you know, they, sh we show up at a church and like everybody kind of like scoots down and like, oh. Um, and this community totally embraced us. And like, you know, one of the stories we tell in, in, in my, in my family back home is after that, that first Sunday we were, had been invited to three homes for meals by the time oh. we left, yeah, you know, well. and that kind of, that sense of like welcome, um, and, uh, you know, I think a commitment to, uh, to God's people showed through, um, now, I recognize too that there was welcome for certain folks and not for others, mm. you know, but that's, that's how we were sort of experiencing it at that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, am I getting at kind of what, what your question is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just trying to understand your story and how you were encountering it and the ways that it, I mean, I think it's sometimes just, I, if I think about my own story, there's no easy answer to that question, right. but thinking yeah, about yeah. the ways that it both, at times kept the status quo right alive mm -hmm. but there were ways in which at least in my black evangelical community that i was raised in was also subverting some things right and both of those yeah. things were happening simultaneously yeah and i mean being in the For book sure. of revelation that this is a book that's addressed to churches and and yeah, the each address does start with encouragement before the smackdown. <laughs> so there, 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 there's some some beautiful things which do look like the revelation Christ Jesus, and then there's all this other stuff that we'll get to. But um, yeah, that's I think that's important with our own stories as well. How to start with you know an asset space, like what, what are the things that right. we're going to, yes. what are the right. beautiful things worth celebrating and then go, and we'd completely capitulated to empire and our imaginations <laughs> were completely captive to white supremacy and capitalism yeah. dominated how we thought about everything. And Jesus was always on the side. I mean, they're, they're realities that um, this book speak to if we um, yeah. uh, honor it in, in such ways that do look like the revelation Jesus but our stories look like that too, right? Yeah, I think that's really good. I mean, I, it, it has taken me, I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I'm not done with this yet. It, it, it took me time, though, to be able to go back and begin to appreciate the things that I could appreciate and take away from those experiences. Because, you know, there, there is yeah. that stage where you just want to, you know, transcend it and not include it. Um, yes. Right. And yeah. cut it from uh, your story. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, and I recognize that in myself and, you know, one of the things that uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, if you don't mind, but um, my, my stepfather committed suicide in mm. um, oh, 2000 and in yeah. um, 2003. And uh, he, you know, he struggled with depression and he was in a community where, you know, that's like, 
um, you know, men of that age in that religious community, you don't go to a counselor, you don't take right. medicine for depression, you know, you, you get your faith in order, you say your prayers, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, for a long, I mean, and after he died, uh, we were already out, we had moved from Ohio to LA and I was in seminary, but uh, you know, we went to, or I went to a therapist for a year, year and a half, two years to kind of process all that. It was about 10 years later that it occurred to me that I was still angry and had not really worked through the grief of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the, and the way that I knew that the, the way that it showed up for me was I was I was essentially holding his name's Bernie. I was essentially holding Bernie's memory hostage. Um, mm. Any story that I would tell, any way that I would talk about him, if I would talk about him at all, was always really negative, really harsh. And you know, if I were to tell you in in that kind of setting, if I were to tell you stories about him, you would have been like, ah, what a what terrible a terrible person, person. you know, right. like. And I realized, like, I have I have tried to distance myself from him mm-hmm. in a way that um, marked my own hurt, my own anger, yeah. my own mm-hmm. unhealing. And yeah. uh, and then, I mean, you know, when I realized that, I was able to start kind of re-narrating and thinking about all the ways in which he he blessed me and he taught me mm-hmm. all kinds of things and. Wow. Yeah. And the things that I um, I could take with me, and now I mean I can tell story all kinds of stories about him. Some of them are not you know they're not great. Some of them are great. And you know, yep. anyways, it, I was able to kind of include the rest of his life back into my memory. Um, yeah. You know, I, so I, I think I'm just I'm just trying to say that that's a process of. Yeah. kind of being able to go back through and find those pieces. Um, That's yeah, really like One of my mentors who often talks about, he uses the language of inheritance, but talking about what we receive from our communities and you've got to kind of like, it's easy to want like to pretend that. like, you know, it's not a part of us, but how do we take what we've received and then what do we do with that is more the question, but we've got to acknowledge all that we've received and all that we've inherited um, rather than pretending Mm. or distancing and all these maneuvers that we'll make to, you know, try to distance ourselves from maybe complicated histories. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I love that. And Wes, what I heard you doing bravely and thank you for sharing that with us is trying to relate to your stepfather in such a way that I feel um, is true of, so many things in people's story, in, including um, the Bible itself and particularly the book mm. of Revelation, is that mm. how, how do we um, uh, reintegrate and take back? I, I heard you doing it in terms of even the Quaker tradition. You know, there's, there's a way for those outside the peace church traditions, um, particularly those of us who, um, uh, you know, have jumped in from outside to... Yeah. Um, idolize and create a hagiography of a mm-hmm. finally a perfect tradition and there's enough in the tradition um, enough propaganda to want to back that up um, and <laughs> right, right. It, instead to actually relate to the traditions um, 
in all uh, their brokenness and realize that the transformation of the traditions is actually in that as well. It's the evangelical friends that um, were on the forefront of prison reform in the UK. Um, uh, It it is uh, the quietest liberals who were actually absent from a whole heap of stuff in the US. Uh, These are not the stories as they often get told um, if you show up to a yearly meeting, uh, um, but they're, they're the complexities of both these traditions and our own, our own lives, our own stories. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is how I got into revelation. I, that's a, it's a, it's a, like how you connected that. Um, I, you know, I, as, as with, any of us who've grown up in the church and have been influenced by evangelicalism, you know, I had uh, an allergy to revelation. Um, and uh, I, you know, and this was, so I, I pastored Camus French church in Washington state for six years um, while I was working on my dissertation. And, um, and so this, so what had happened basically was, you know, I'm, I'm preaching every week and uh, I'd kind of sworn off, like there's certain books that you don't do, um, you know, and Revelation was one of them. Right. So, uh, and, and, and because I, I am an unorthodox Quaker in lots of ways, I, I follow the lectionary uh, or was following the lectionary. And, um, and, and, you know, sure enough, somebody snuck revelation into the lectionary. Uh, I don't know how that got past the committee, but um, I had recently been on a retreat with Parker Palmer. There's like a, you know, one of his kind of uh, courage and renewal retreats. And he had said something about, it may be important to say Wes for a lot of people who have read him that he's also a Quaker. So this is the tradition. Oh yeah. um, uh, You got to claim your own bro. That's right. Yes. Parker Palmer is, is a Quaker. And, and I, I mean, I know a, a good amount of Quakers and uh, when I met, when I like met Parker Palmer for the first time, I was just like, you know, I was just like <laughs> super fanboy. I was like, how do I talk to this guy? Like, you know, and, and he's like, like a grandpa. I mean, he's just like super kind and like, you know, anyways, it was, it was silly to be starstruck, but um, anyways, he, he made a, like an offhanded comment about how he only writes books about things that baffle him, things that mm. he doesn't understand that keep him awake. And, and I, you know, I, I, I filed that away. I, I was like, Oh, you know, it's mm. not just the things that I find easier. I feel like I know what are the things that really, that, you know, I'm kind of like pushed away from like, and to, to kind of like lean into that and to try to understand what mm. it is. And, um, so, you know, I put that in my back pocket or whatever, and I'm in, in the next thing, you know, flash forward a couple months and I'm, you know, thinking about, okay, what's the next uh, series I'm going to do. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to pull out this little trick from Parker Palmer. You know, I wonder what, re- what is the thing that really baffles me in, in the Bible? You know, what is the thing that I really want that I would, pre- I would like to do the least. And I was just like, as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, you know, I mean, as soon as I said that, I knew it was Revelation. And I was like, oh, okay, forget that. You know, uh, that was a nice little trick, but let's do something else. And it it just so happened that it was also an electionary coming up. 
And um, so I, you know, as I thought about it, I, I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this idea of leaning into the thing that I feel uh, repulsed by, mm. but also um, surely there are people who have understood this book in a way that was different from what I've learned. Surely there is somebody you know, and I mean, I was aware of like, I was not aware of specific works done on Revelation yet at that point, but I was aware of like, I had been reading Wes Howard Brooks, uh, mm. Come Out My People. Man, that's incredible. The, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, it's, that it's, it's turned a, my world what, upside down. What Ched Myers did for the Gospel of Mark, Mark, Mark right. somehow Wes... Um, Wes rather um, managed to do that for the whole of scriptures in something that yeah. is um, scholarly brilliant but very accessible like it, it's it's something that um, community small groups can use at the same time it's a it's an extraordinary text it is it's fantastic uh, I had been reading that um, for some time and kind of Wor working on the he talks about the religion of creation and the religion of the empire and kind of reading mm. scripture with those two poles in mind so I, I knew like you know i had those sorts of frameworks and i was um you know by that point aware of and drawing on liberation theologies but but still it was so i was i knew enough to say like surely there are folks like that who have thought about this right. but I, I don't know who they are um so, so that's how I got back into, um, into it. And, and, and of course, there are lots of folks who've written about this. Um, and I'm continuing to find more people, even after I've written the book, you know, of who, who are working on it. Um, feminist theologians, black theologians, mm -hmm. you know, uh, lots of people doing good work on Revelation and uh, giving a very different perspective. And so I would say like, you know, one of, I think the selling point for, for my book is I've, I've done a lot of the hard work and simplified it down, you know, <laughs> for other people to read because, you know, some of these things are, uh, some of those, those uh, books are pretty challenging. Yeah. 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 Doesn't the phrase, if I'm, I'm trying to remember Wes, the phrase, the war of the lamb, doesn't that get used by Quakers in New England? That's right. That's right. right. Well, Actually, uh, uh, early early friends before they get to even before them. then. Okay, so that's when yeah. I encountered it first. I think in sure, my sure. reading. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it is um, it is really. Um, I don't remember the who who was the first to use it, um, but they. This is how they articulate their their theology of nonviolence. Right, it that's is right. from the Book of Revelation. Right, right. And the War of the Lamb. I mean. Right there is a nonviolent theology rooted in the book of revelation. Right. That's right. This that's is right. not, this right. is not left behind stuff. Okay. Right. That's right. Um, and, and this is like, uh, you know, very old. I mean, it's, it, it is the Quakers and Baptists, others pick up on this, but this right. goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. This is, yeah. this is nonviolent right. theology of the early church. That's right. Um, so yeah. So, anyways, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to do with that. Well, one of the things I, and resisting empire. Congratulations! It's it's wonderful. Um, so much so that uh, I have a group of fellas that um, we're reading books together, and we've 
adopted it automatically. So we're reading through it at the oh, moment great, and people are from all different walks of life. And um, uh, so that's been really exciting. But one of the metaphors I love in it is you talk about going to the cinema and seeing a film and thinking that it's out of focus and that, um, you know, this is an awful experience. Like it actually kind of hurts your eyes and um, uh, what's the fuss that everybody's been talking about. And then somebody handing you a pair of 3d glasses and suddenly you get what everybody's talking about. Oh my goodness. Like this is incredible. Like why didn't somebody hand me the glasses? Um, I love that metaphor and uh, I'm going to steal it and reference you as I do it. Um, But with this particular text that you've chosen that gets thrown around as conspiracy theories for why people should feel fear barcodes on the back of their milk containers or why, you know, the kind of (laughs) crazy stuff that people, um, why why not to put, um, uh, you know, a tracking thing in in your pets um, or, you know, like whatever it is maybe would you, Do you talk have a us- tracking thing in your pets <laughs> <laughs> no i read my bible okay no, no. after the podcast we need to talk oh they don't do that in the u.s that's actually really yeah, big they, here they, like they local councils yeah, no. actually encourage no, no you judgment. <laughs> encourage you here to um <clears throat> I, f- I feel bad i feel compunction <laughs> anyway wes this passage would you help us read uh Revelation 13, in ways that actually are Christ-like instead of crazy? Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I should, I should since, since the, all of your listeners can't see our video, um, I should point out that I do actually have a birthmark on my forehead. So you need to really take uh, everything I'd say with a grain of salt. Because, um, I, I thought- you know, I could be the could be the anti That could be the mark. Okay. Yeah, I just that thought you were Harry mark. Potter. That's what was going on for me. <laughs> um, Revelation has, as I mentioned, has been used as evacuation theology. Mm, right. And that's relatively new. I mean, I would say yeah. in the last 150 years, right. you can give a lot of, um, put, a, put a lot of the blame on the shoulders of the Schofield Bible and dispensationalism and those sorts of right. things. Right. And just to pause um, there for also, a second, um, that's often really important for people to hear that rapture theology wasn't believed baby. throughout right. church history that right. our Catholic doctrine. sisters and brothers, right. our Orthodox right. sisters and brothers, that um, early Baptists, that um, uh, magisterial reformers, uh, whether Lutheran or, or Calvin, none of them are down with a this reading of revelation and b um it's crazy implications that all of it is a very modern phenomena right that itself is permission giving for a lot of people who've grown up like in the crazy as being sold as orthodoxy right yeah yeah and 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 white western christianity specifically um you know so um and, and I mean, we were ju- we've just been talking about how early friends, as an exam- as a case study, understood to be living themselves living in the kingdom of God uh, on earth, understood and used Revelation as a challenge against what they understood to be an apostate church because it was re- because it was in bed with the state. And under yeah. and read it for nonviolent theology. I mean, so yeah. this isn't like 
Um, but I think we also have to kind of re, uh, you know, re-experience these things for ourselves too, to some yeah, degree. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the big claim is, 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 is really quite simple, which is that the book of revelation was written for, um, small minority faith communities trying to survive empire. Mm. It was written to the early church who were marginalized, dis- disenfranchised, had very little to no political standing at all, mm. living under Roman occupation. And this is a letter to them about how to be faithful, how to resist, and how to not assimilate into empire, Right. how to not become like empire. Um and that if we, I mean, if we start there is, it's not about predicting the end of the world. It has nothing to yeah. do with that. Yeah. It has nothing to do with predicting that. It, it, John, who was writing from, Al, uh, from Alcatraz, from the <laughs> island of Patmos, which was like an Alcatraz like an, or an totally. Azkaban. Yeah. yeah. He's you know, a political um, prisoner as Daniel Berrigan right. would say. Absolutely. Right. He's a, he's right. a political prisoner of the, of the Roman state. And you get a sense of why because of right. when reading his letter, right? right? He wasn't <laughs> a big fan of Caesar. Uh, okay, so I understand why he's in prison. Uh, right. Right. And he, not unlike King, writing a letter from a Birmingham prison, mm. is writing this letter, feeding it out to the churches who are yeah. tempted to assimilate into empire. Right. And he's challenging them to resist. And, and here's how you resist. Um, and so, so Wes, uh, to contextualize it a little bit, it might be, I'm aware with, um, uh, Ernesto, um, Cardinal just passing the liberation, yeah. Catholic liberation theologian and incredible, um, poet who, um, was disciplined by the Catholic church and then reinstated, um, by, mm. uh, Pope Francis, but his discipline was his support of the Zapatistas. Um, yeah. and, uh, this this letter is like to communities that were like the Zapatistas, um, communities of resistance living out of a different story, um, trying to survive in, in the most um, uh, brutal realities. And this is a letter yeah. of both encouragement and correction in the midst yeah. of that which wants to assume them, that, that these are communities, or, or like um, I think of uh, my sisters and brothers in um, West Papua, um, and the Indonesian junta and the, the threat of um, the Indonesian uh, to um, their churches um, mm. and their communities and their traditional indigenous practices. Um, and the book of Revelation is written to them. That's a, to, to contextualize it today um, as threatened communities okay. trying to hold a story while in the belly of the beast, not to be consumed yeah. by the yep. gastric juices, but to give it a stomach ache, but giving it a stomach ache is it's just hard work. That's the setting you're talking about. And that's why like your book is so phenomenal because all of that pops from the page, the, the context, the 3d glasses. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a much better movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, framing it, it is what 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 we're suggesting is that you need to read this from as you know from a 
the posi- the the from the margins as mm. um, you know I guess as as one way to say it we need to to do our best to read it as though we are in that role and I yeah. and I recognize that as a white middle class educated person in America that is not where I go to first that is not my natural state of mm. understanding and reading and I have to do work I have to do a lot of work to try to understand that perspective and i have to be in community with people who are reading it from different perspectives and that's why you know there's um there's such good work done by feminist theologians and black Mm -hmm. theologians around these texts because Mm -hmm. they're able to read it and understand it in a different way um elizabeth schusler fiorenza says something very strange happens when this text is appropriated by readers in a comfortable, powerful majority right. community. It right. becomes a gold mine for paranoid fantasies and mm-hmm. for those who want to preach revenge and destruction. Wow. wow. Right. That's right. That's, that says yeah. it all right there. Yeah. That says it all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so then you have, on the other hand, as, as you're mentioning, Jared, um, these communities in, in uh, these Christian communities in Rome who've lived, uh, you know, we think most likely it's the time of Domitian, mm. um, late 90s, um, 100 uh, after, after the death of Christ time period. Um, Nero has just burned everybody at the stake shortly before that. There's heavy persecution. This is a time... Uh, apocalyptic li- this is a time for apocalyptic literature right yeah. apocalyptic literature is a particular genre that comes to communities in crisis to communities that uh, one kind of one way I've, I've talked about it is like um, a community that is um, basically has lost all hope and so what what do you tell a community after they've lost hope like Mm. what do they do and you know sort of like what would you tell the the people on the titanic after they realized like it's too late to turn and that's the role of apocalyptic literature yeah often is to kind of come into that that gap and speak to the people um you know and so there's such a disingenuous um part of christianity where we, when we make it about us in 2020, we are saying that John, the, this, this pastor John is pretending to write to his people, but he's actually writing to people 2000 years from now. Yeah. I, I, that is extremely disingenuous and, and also just like hard Arrog- to believe. And, yeah. arrogant, right? <laughs> and arrogant, right? It's like, yeah. no, he's a pastor. He's writing to his people real concerns about their survival um you know i mean so this is uh i think that these are the with that framing in mind we can enter back into the text in a different way and i mean it doesn't that doesn't help make sense of everything but it gets us a long way into beginning to understand that this letter we are not the intended audience this letter is not for us Mm. it can become for us once we read it from the perspective of the people it was originally for. That's right. Once um, we're it, for and with them, it then yeah. is addressed to us. 
uh, but there is a conversion necessary for us to be for and with. It, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, That's right. So in spirit, we, we need to be with the 43% of Americans who live in the reality of poverty uh, in 2020. Like yeah. um, they're our people. Like that, that's, a, that's a reality. And to bring it back to the Poor People's Campaign or to bring it back to um, Reverend Barber and the work that he's doing uh, at the moment, um, that this is the reality of what we're talking to. And this letter has prophetic things to say to us as a people if we're for and with them. But if we're not, it's not ours and it's not for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so should we say something about the Mark of the Beast? Yeah, please. Yeah, help, help us understand. Break it down for us. Show of hands, all those for Putin, all those for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, we're sort of all, <laughs> That's we're all right. implicated. Yeah. The, the reading doesn't get easier. <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> that's the that's the easy way out, Jared. Um, uh, I tried to emphasize this when I was reading it, but it says the image of the beast over and over and over right. and over again. Right. Where, okay, so the image of the beast as opposed to the image of God, the Lamb. That's what right. do we know about the image of God? Chapter five. Is, yeah. And, and, and the beginning, right? Yeah. The image of God is the way that we are made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Wes Howard Brook, besides having an awesome name, also I heavily draw on him for this. He talks about the religion of creation. And the mm-hmm. religion of creation understands that all things are made in the image of God. And if, and if we were to structure our communities and our politics and our economics out of that type of a religion, it would look very different. Um, And what Revelation is telling us is that there is another kind of religion that is rooted in the image of the beast. Mm. And the image of the beast stands in direct contrast to the lamb. uh, In the book, I I use the language of the the religion of the lamb. in place of creation, just because it's what mm. revelation, the revelation um, draws heavily on the lamb uh, yeah. that was slain. That's the main, that is, it's like, if you forget everything else in this book, remember the lamb that was slain, slain and let right. that direct your moral imagination. Yes. That's, that's right. really what revelation is basically saying. Everything um, pivots on chapter five. Yeah. Right. Everything right. pivots on chapter five. And, um, and so, the this this uh beast there's actually two uh we can assume that it was about uh, rome and caesar you know beast one is is the empire beast two is is probably caesar something like that mm. um but i think what's more important is recognizing the ideological challenge here of the image of the beast and there is an economics rooted in this image, this economics that um, this icon of the beast uh, is the the Greek, what the Greek says. So um, there is, uh, if you'll remember, uh, I know that you both know this, um, the coins 
the denarii have an icon on them too. Mm -hmm. It's Caesar's face, right? Right. And Caesar in the religion of empire is who? The The son son of of God. God. That's right. Right. Caesar is the son of God in the religion of empire. Right. Well, in the religion of the lamb, who's the son of God? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we've got two competing religions here. And, uh, and so there is an image of the beast on the coins that we use on the, uh, that is a part of the economy that we are a part of. And Mm -hmm. if you do not participate in this economy, if you do not worship the image of the beast, you will be killed. Now, do we have anybody in our history who has stood up? to the economics of the beast and been killed. Yes. <laughs> let me, let me answer that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Lots of people, especially yeah. Dr. King, as right. we're talking about the poor people's campaign. Right. Um, and this, and, and, and this is, is chapter just, 12 as well, that um, this is the encouragement. Um, they have overcome by the blood of the lamb. What a strange mm-hmm. power. And by the witness or testimony or words of the martyrs. Like this is yep. the strange victory that um, uh, those who are caught up in this lamb-like power, um, it often has the consequences that the dragon consumes you and yet that's yep. not the last word. That's right. That's right. In fact, um, uh, there's, there's an important part about that there's a number of worship scenes that take place mm. and uh, throughout revelation and the, at the cent there's all, all the lamb is always in the center of those worship. That's right. Kind of yeah. Worship circles, but the lamb isn't alone. Right. Mm. The lamb is with the victims of empire. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in the worship, in the liturgy of the lamb, yeah. you have, the victims of empire centered wow. in that liturgy. Yeah. Right. Wes, this they is so are, important. I, I want you back on another episode with Drew and I to, to do liturgy and empire stuff. Like I, I don't great. want to distract from chapter 13, but um, we'd love to have you back on because um, yeah. uh, Drew, Drew and I are nodding furiously because I think this is so powerful <laughs> for this moment in history, um, not right. just in, in your nation or mine, but this, like in our unprecedented ecological crisis with the right. rise of totalitarianism, um, right. people wanting authoritarian leaders and the church often um, in bed and completely partial to the propaganda of the beast. Um, yeah. we, we desperately need to have that conversation with you. That would be great. I would, I would love to talk more about that and, and find out ways that both of you see um, and participate in liturgies of resistance because mm, I think yeah. that's really what this is about. Mm, but yeah. um, the uh, you know and and so we've talked about how you know you have to worship, participate uh, in this system, uh, or you can be killed. Uh, it's systemic in that it Im- impacts everyone who is a part of it, free and slave, rich and poor. You know, don't get too worried about this idea of the mark. The mark is the is is the thing that is on the coin. It's yeah. the th- it's the thing on the um, 
uh, it's, it's Caesar's face imprinted on the coin that Revelation is saying is a part of this. this it's, a, it's a symbol of the system. Yeah. So that no one can buy or sell unless you're willing to play the game. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's really what it's, what it's getting at. Um, so, so in other words, what, what I think Revelation is saying is that John is revealing an economic system that creates poles in society. Mm. There are, um, Wes Howard Brook uh, suggests that the religion of empire is rooted in uh, or legitimates itself in a, by using God or religion, but it mm. is human-made. And it is based on um, benefiting some at the expense of everyone else. Yes. Right. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, I like that definition. I think it's pretty straight to the point. And, um, and John is showing that there is in Rome and in the religion of empire an economic system that's doing the same thing is based on some living in poverty uh, for the benefit of others. The religion of empire's beastly economics uh, is a system or structure that is actually doing what it is supposed to do. Right. Some That's are right. getting rich, mm. the rest are getting poor. You know, this right. is this is a, a key insight that I took from um, uh, folks at uh, the Cairo Center at Union and the Poor People's Campaign, which mm. is that um, poverty in the U.S is the system working right it's That's not right. a yeah. sign of the system broke yeah this is what system. it's supposed to do yeah um it's and we have all kinds for. of different we have all kinds of different ways of thinking about and talking about uh poverty you know uh well there was a hurricane and so this community was devastated you made bad choices uh you know you're you're poor because of that um you know, there's, there's the destiny, there's the God wants some people to be poor. No, poverty is structural. Right. And Revelation is telling us that economics rooted in the image of the beast is a structural oppression yeah. that impacts and, and works in a way that if you don't play along, you are going to be poor. If you don't play along, you could be killed. Yeah. Um, Etc. So this is, I think, really kind of getting at the heart of, of what I think this is really all about. And Wes, that's why if, if we allow this to be that God has an end in mind instead of the end times, excuse the preacher line, but like if, if we move from end times to God has an end in mind, the, the end times kind of um, uh uh, phobias, paranoias, anxieties. We've, with the coronavirus here in Australia, we've just had a situation in my city where toilet paper has been emptied of sh shelves. And this is now nationwide through social media right. that people have yeah. gone and bought wow. toilet paper um, because we find it, um, you know, it, it's that line, we find it easier to imagine the end of the world than we do the world looking differently uh, to, to imagine yeah. the kingdom of God. Because we know it's coming to an end. Right? That's, and, and so we, we have this um, uh, reverse apocalypse where what's being revealed is not Christ Jesus. It is not the, the power of the lamb, but it's this other apocalypse, which is the apocalypse of um, 
you know, Hollywood, which is always a panic, which is always um, the fear your neighbor because they're zombies, um, uh, stockpile weapons, stockpile food, stockpile. um, And the the image that we're given, uh, much like that was being, you know, throughout Turkey um, at at the time of uh, this writing, there are images being constructed in cities that, um, uh, and then coins that reflect those statues and the economy. These are all in the marketplace. And this text is um, explicitly about how the marketplace functions, uh, the symbols uh, which ask for our allegiance and the anxiety and panic that it is us against them and everybody for themselves rather than what it is to be communities where it's us for others and um, no one ahead without all of us together. And it's a completely, it's a different way. And that's what I find fascinating. Like um, uh, verse 11, where it said, where it says he had two horns like a lamb. Yeah. Yeah. The ability of um, the way the systems present themselves that we're being called out of, we're called into because they imitate Jesus in ways that are powerful, uh, but are complete parodies. Yeah. Right. And our inability right. to discern right. the difference between what is powerful and what is a parody, the, the liturgies of nationalism um, when there is a horrific terrorist attack or something like that, it feels religious like these services, right. Anzac right. Day oh, services yeah. or, um, you know, these military services. It's like, well, scripture's being quoted. There's, but what it asks for us is that my freedom doesn't come from Calvary. My f- freedom comes from Gallipoli or my freedom comes from some right. other war that was fought or my freedom. And the yeah. quote unquote freedom to worship is not the freedom of a slain lamb and the witness to that by martyrs. It's instead um, uh, the call to again sacrifice young people um, in endless wars while people profit from it. And we have no ability to discern because it feels religious between a beast that has horns like a lamb and the lamb that was slain that will save us. That's right. That remind when you're talking, it made me think of the Super Bowl. Uh, oh, oh, wow. You know, I mean, it's Absolutely. the flag, it's oh over the top, people are crying. It's this, it's a religious moment. It's a sacred moment for, for our nation, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and, but it's a, it's a counterfeit to the real thing. Well, I mean, and this, the, we're, we're, I mean, we are swerving into, um, because these things are connected. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this 2000 year old letter understands that these things are connected and they've always been connected. That's right. Um, Liturgies of empire are completely um, interwoven with the uh, economics of empire. Right, the economic system. You know, I mean, I when when I when I was working on um, the Sunday school version of this, uh, uh, it was like right during the impeachment trials. You want to talk mm-hmm. about liturgies of empire? Goodness. I mean, yeah. So so there's there's a lot in there. Um, Going back to what you were saying about um, what's happening right now and uh, the symbols and that sort of thing, um, just one little piece, one other little piece. Um, as I was kind of looking through my notes, the the mark, the the, the Greek word is kar- kar- karagma. Is that mm. how you say it? 
and um, it means to stamp or to make an impression on something. Yeah. Um, and so this word shows up not just on the coins, but official seal of business right. of the empire, right. branding impress right. impressed upon prisoners, right. branding impressed upon slaves. That's right. And, brand, and, 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 and marked on religious devotees of the imperial religion. Right. Um, you know, I mean, so these are the ways in which these things are so interwoven. Right. Um, my other, I, before we, before we uh, get to the end of this, I, I have to share in, in Revelation 18, the, oh, what's yeah. known as the cargo list. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's right. you, you all are you all are uh, already you know the punchline to this. Um, yeah, but make it plain. This is great. Which is good. Uh, you know, Revelation eighteen is a great is a great chapter if you want to get an idea about how God feels about empire. Mm. <laughs> uh, not great. Not great is the, <laughs> the answer. Um, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, right. a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Her being Rome, by the way, right. uh, yeah, yeah. With her, with, or with Babylon, which is Rome. Um, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, mm. so that you do not take part in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 11 where it gets into the um, uh, the what's called the cargo list, what the ships are trading, what the uh, what the Roman ships are, have on the have on them as they're coming up, going and um, uh, coming into port. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearl, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves, and human lives. Mm. Uh, the Greek here says human bodies. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and in, bodies in the first century context um, of the Roman Empire is literally how they would refer to slaves, simply as bodies. Right. It builds up to slaves. The empire trades in slaves, in human bodies. Yeah. In 90 AD, the Christian texts say, do not participate in economics of slavery, in economics of oppression. This is the thing that God will bring down. 
right? Yeah. It, it is in our text. And so the only way around that is to make this about evacuation theology, That's right. to turn it into a joke, to stop preaching it, yeah. to stop teaching it. Um, you know, that's because otherwise we got to like think, okay, how are we participating in, in these types of systems? Totally. What are, what's the cargo list of America? What's the cargo list of Australia, right? Yep. What's the cargo list of late capitalism? Yep. And, you know, so I, I'm not a big fan actually of us not reading these texts in the church. I am, I mean, now granted we need to have a, you know, a liberatory reading of these texts. Yep. But we need to read them because this is a different this is a different uh, teaching than what we're getting in in a lot of our churches. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's so it's just recently at Messiah, I've had several conversations with professors who have talked about growing up and having nightmares from the Book of Revelations, but it was nightmares around the rapture right, or things right. like that. And instead, they could have been, you know, <laughs> we should be having convicted, around right, around yeah. our posture before God because of yeah. right the exploitation <laughs> of poor people, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, uh, but it does. It's a misdirection. It's a detour around taking seriously um, the implications it has for how we organize our lives every day. Well, is it John John Woolman's journals? That- Sorry, Wes. I should, I should be more on the ball and smarter than this, but it, it, Schofield is writing in a way that creates misdirection right. about the time that right. industrialization is taking off. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, so what's that all about? You know, I, I just sort of yeah. made those connections, but. Oh, where? The end of slavery, slavery's that. crumbling and all these things yeah. are happening. And it's this, it's got to be, I see it as a response to its historic moments. Yeah. 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 And, and you, you look at the Puritanism of the Plymouth Brethrens where this stuff really took off um, in uh, the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, and the context of, the, the indigenous people of the island um, being discriminated against, stripped of their land, uh, stripped of their language, and mm. this happens to be a popular spirituality, which is, like, none, none of those, like, context is everything, right? Like, I right. love Tony right. Capolo has that great line um, when people quote um, Romans 13. He says, I have no problem with Romans 13. But Revelation 13 is also in your Bible. <laughs> right, right. I do some. So I I haven't heard him say that, but I I say we got to read Romans 13, uh, Revelation 13, and I also say Luke 13 because then that's where Jesus, you know, calls uh, Herod a fox, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Let's have oh, all nice. the 13s all at the same that's time. That's awesome. Have a yeah. Well, and this is that's a really interesting thing because, like, in terms of the um, the 666, and you know, different scholars do so much work in terms of contextualizing it in the Roman Empire, um, I'm always shocked that we, we often move so quickly past what it meant for Jewish people. But, yeah. Because the, the first place that um, 666, this very Hebraic way of talking about if, if, if seven is perfection, um, yeah. Yeah. this is reoccurringly flawed, um, uh, not only n- not reaching what is whole, what is good, what is wholesome, uh, what is shalom, but is actually um, a poor imitation, which actually falls short, um, is, is a mm. sinful um, kind of mirror image. And, and it goes back to the, 
a, a dragon with horns like a lamb. It's a, it's an imitation of, and that occurs in what first Kings um, 17 in, uh, sorry, uh, first Kings 10, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, when uh, God's people beg for a King and then they're given a checklist of what not to do. Don't go back to uh, the Egyptian empire uh, don't right. like become yeah. arms dealers trading in like horses and chariots or, or jets and tanks yeah. right. of the day. Don't become um, like the empire. Don't become like the empire. Right. And then literally in um, uh, first Kings 10, uh, th- there's talk of the splendor of Solomon, which our Lord references in the sermon on the Mount. And um, it says Solomon accumulated chariots and horses had 1400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which kept in the chariot cities. And also with him in Jerusalem, the King made silver as common as uh, in Jerusalem as stones and cedars as plentiful with sycamore trees in the foothills. So Solomon uh, horses were imported from Egypt and from Q and the Royal merchants purchased from Q. They imported a chariot from Egypt of 600 shekels, uh, a horse for 450. They exported Basically, it's making explicit they've taken the checklist in Deuteronomy 17, used the exact Hebrew words and gone, he's a bad king, tick, he's a bad king, tick, he's a bad king, tick, and gone through the whole list. And what we miss at the start of um, that section, the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That is the first mm. biblical mention of 666. And it's saying that. that. I, that's interesting. Yeah, here's that's the good. paycheck for empire, 666. Mm. And so in, <laughs> in Revelation 13, yeah. this is what it is. Um, and, and this is why it's so powerful for the church. Is like, yeah. look, look, look. I know it's tempting to go, ooh, it's just them. It's the evil empire and we're the, we're the church. But yeah. we've done this in our history. And Solomon, uh, saying Solomon is a good king is like saying that Harvey Weinstein is a good film producer. Right. Right? Right? Like, it it should strike us in ways that, like, it feels like, oh, goodness, that is gross. That is disgusting. That is because what Solomon is, is Babylon with Bible verses attached. Right. Right. Solomon is how do we do the Babylonian project but do it for the God who hears the cries of slaves. So here's the irony of Solomon, right? And it's all there in uh, Revelation 13. Solomon is um, a son of David. (laughs) And and don't we want a son of David? Solomon is a son of David who builds a temple to the God who hears the cries of slaves and uses slave labor to do it. Right. Yeah. And if we miss that, we will miss that. This isn't simply about... Um, look how the church has got caught up and supported um, uh, uh, oppressive systems, but how the church actually is involved in, in a mimetic rivalry that we long and are in competition for the fame, for the glory, for the power that other empires look for as well. And are we simply doing Babylon with Bible verses or are we coming out and being God's alternative? And all that is in Revelation 13. And you don't need to know about commerce in, in the first yeah, century. You true. don't need to do your historical work. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, 
you need to know your scriptures. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's the power of remix, you know? I mean, totally. and I think that Revelation is draws heavily. I mean, this is apocalyptic literature. Yeah. But but it draws heavily on on um, all sorts of texts from the Hebrew scriptures and, and yeah. uh, revelation 18, there's a, I have something in, in the book about this, that there's, yeah, this is correct. you know, over 35 um, references to other texts in the Hebrew Bible as he's, as, as he's working his way down the checklist of critique. And, you know, that is not lost on the first readers it's lost on a lot of us because we don't know our scriptures as well. Yeah. But, but more importantly, what I think John is saying is the, and to your point, exactly. Um, the whole tradition bears weight on this moment. That's yeah. right. This is what they have been saying and warning us of all along. And that's, and that's where it starts to come to us, right? Mm. Where I said, we aren't the intended readers or the intended audience. Um, that's true. And we're a part of this tradition. And, you know, the power of remix is to pay homage to the past, to draw on that's it. That's right. Yeah. See right. how it bears weight in this moment. And, yes. um, and I think that that's, you know, that's where we, um, that's where we need to go. Yeah, that's good. So fantastic. I, um, I was it a youth pastor once upon a time as a young man. <laughs> and uh, I recently, just this last week, um, uh, so a friend of mine, um, a, a new friend said, actually, uh, you were the youth pastor for my wife. And so I got to uh, see Jen for the first time <laughs> since I was like 20, 21 years old or, or, or something. Awesome. And um, it was funny because the things that Jenny was reminding me about what I was sharing at, at that age, but um with the book of revelation, this is the metaphor that I use with young people. I still find so helpful. So I'll throw it out again that you might love reggae music. And in fact, you, you might know Bob Marley's lyrics off by heart, but if you start to use his lyrics as a roadmap to try and navigate around the city, not only do you get lost because that's not what it's for, but you forget to dance. And the danger of the book of Revelation is not only do we get lost in, oh my goodness, this hasn't made sense until like today's date on the calendar. And now we can see clearly that it's this leader, but we forget the dance of discipleship. We forget what it is to actually participate in the power of lamb-like love, which um, though crucifiable always resurrects. And that's why I appreciate your book so much and your witness Wes, what, what you're bringing uh, together at the moment, it's, it's, a, um, it's an elegant and accessible and truly profound offering. So thank you so much for your work and witness and how it makes this um, very dangerous text dangerous for us in ways that look like our saviour instead of look satanic. Yeah, it's really important. Um, it's... Interest. I mean, I know so many people that are still intimidated by the Book of Revelation, right? And you got yeah. the animals and beasts and dragons, yeah. and 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 one's imagination can go wild if you don't have a guide through it, yeah. right? And yeah. so that kind of guide is really important. And 
um, the, just the work to unveil um, not only what's happening in that first century in terms of the pastoral work that's happening, but also just the subversive path and walk to follow the way of the lamb today is really important. And one of the ways that I've um, connected it, thinking even about um, some have like thought about like just the double meanings, right. That are in the mm-hmm. book of revelation yeah. and, and how like even thinking about like enslaved African-Americans, my own ancestors, mm. um, you know, today it's, or, or there was a period of time where white folks, you know, would read the Briar Rabbit stories, right? <laughs> um, mm. And they'd read the Briar Rabbit, but disconnect from the actual meaning um, while the, wow. you know, these folks are, they're telling these stories as a subversive trickster figure, right? Yes. Um, and so when they tell, you know, uh, the, the 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 judge was the fox and the jury was the fox and uh, you know on one hand it sounds like a nice little fable story but it also has this other meaning that's subverting right yeah. everything that's going on around them and it's an interpretation put on the 3d glasses right put on the right, 3d on the glasses. glasses and there's something else happening <laughs> and so i mean that's one of the ways that i often try to help people think about the book of revelation um that there's a reason why they've got to use uh, and they and the Jewish tradition they have this apocalyptic genre to mm-hmm. just for these moments, right? That's right. Um, and but we've some, somehow or maybe not somehow, as you said it, intentionally, right? Domesticated, distorted, um, and and you know plundered the power of of the book um, so that it doesn't speak to us and challenge us to to follow the way of the Lamb and and opt out of the economic arrangements um, that are just so structured into our society yeah so true true so true yeah that's good that's good Wes this has been wonderful um would you would you pray for us and our listeners like in terms of taking this text and um uh those of us wanting to not merely have a podcast that leads to interesting discussion but leads um, (laughs) to the kind of stuff that we, we can start to do with our lives something that speaks of the lamb instead of the beast. Um, we'd love it if, if you'd pray for us. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Let's pray. God, I give you thanks for this time together with Jared and Drew working through this text and wondering, questioning, probing, not only what it meant for the first readers, but what it means for us today in each of our communities and around the world. Mm. Help us be a people who challenge the distorted narratives of the distorted theological narratives of uh, capitalism, militarism, patriarchy, white supremacy to challenge those and to be a part of uh, alternatives, of resistance, of the multitude, as Revelation says. Mm -hmm. Draw us together, help us to follow the Lamb, Mm -hmm. and to be a people who um, refuse to be and act like the empire. Mm -hmm. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Thank you, friends. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So so good to be with you. 
and to have this time together. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.